right, and again with us, he was here a couple of weeks ago, Brother Skip Hunter, so come ahead, sir. What profound words you hear in uh, these various hymns and songs, the specials of today. What a, uh, what a blessing it is to, to come to this church. I want to say thank you again for the warm welcome we've received and uh, uh, for just being so kind to us. Uh, I enjoy the music. I enjoyed uh, seeing how musical this ministry is. I think the last time we were here a couple weeks ago, there was either a quartet or five ladies uh, playing stringed instruments, and that was a blessing. And then to see the orchestra in play tonight, um, this morning. Uh, so I had brass and the flute and the uh, and the uh, cello. I'm hoping that's right, a cello. Uh, it's either a cello or a viola. I don't know which. Sometimes it's the size. So, uh, but uh, I really enjoy music, and so what a what a blessing it is. And really, when you stop. And uh, listen to the, the to the words. Oftentimes, you'll see a tune properly married to a text, and that's how uh, God's music, the the music that exalts Him, uh, the music that edifies and builds up believers, is when the tune uh, matches the text. And uh, oftentimes, there'll be profound statements, such in the special we just heard. How many of us truly, when we look at a nativity, nativity scene like this and we think to the babe, who probably didn't look exactly like this, uh, and certainly uh, there's a good chance that Christ was born in a cave and he was in a trough, uh, but certainly this depicts. But how many of us really stop and, and look at that babe as our creator? How many of us actually look at that babe as, as our righteous judge? How many of us look at him as the lover of our souls? And so it's a real blessing to just be challenged in a message, a message from Psalm before we ever get to oftentimes the message. It's all worship, it's all preparation, the time of prayer, the time of singing, the time of giving until we come to a place where, Lord willing, we're fed and challenged from God's Word. And I'm privileged to be here. Uh, with my wife, Wanda, and and have opportunity to share this week. So thank you for having us back. Uh, I especially enjoyed that offertory, and I especially enjoyed uh, the holy night. Stretch goals, we call them at work. Uh, When we're challenged to go beyond sometimes where we're oftentimes ready to go, uh, I know with the offertory, I want to challenge you to keep up with that music. I took piano for uh, one year and regret that I stopped. I put a lot of things else in front of it and I never, never really learned to play. And I regret it to this day. So I want to encourage you to continue with the music and, uh, uh, and the song. Take a challenge. There's, there's some tough songs in these hymns. Uh, and especially the ending on that old holy night is not exactly traditional to what we're used to. That is the oldest tradition of the way it's sung. But we're not really familiar with that, so it gets a little difficult at times. I have uh, had opportunity to work in a number of different jobs and a different number of different occupations um, throughout life, short as it's been so far. Uh, I, at one time served in the military. I was in the Air Force for eight and a half years and uh, served on B-52s, first as a navigator, later as a bombardier, and uh, uh, flew in Desert Storm, 12 combat missions. Almost didn't survive the first one after that. It was really a piece of cake, it seemed like. Uh, But uh, the Lord was gracious and preserved me and my crew, and I was able to go on and do other things. I, I worked... Uh, at a company that built golf carts. I don't know how many of you play golf, uh, but in Augusta, Georgia, there are two competing golf cart companies, and they started from the same people. And I I don't know how these things usually go, but sometimes businessmen get angry with each other, and they split up and start a new business and compete with each other, and that's what happened. So the company I worked uh, for was called Club Car, and uh, I didn't actually work for them, but I worked in their facility for a different company. I was the on-site quality assurance individual. Uh, and so uh, one, I attended a number of meetings. One time they had a plant meeting, and 
Uh, there was a vice president there that said they were going to introduce a new three-phase uh, production and shipping plan. Uh, the first phase was to consistently reach a daily goal of 90 to 100% shipping of cars built. Now, that would be cars that start, and three days later they come off the line and, and would ship out the door. The second phase was to begin shipping cars, these golf carts, to the dock, uh, which was a change for them, and a third phase to take these cars directly from the line to a waiting trailer. So they were going to try to step up the production and increase or shorten that period of time that they would get product to the customer. And it was all about customer satisfaction. And my job, the only function I had was quality assurance of our product that was being provided to make sure that they had enough product and it was of the right quality so that they could build their golf carts. It was all about customer satisfaction for us. Uh, the current uh, job that I work in, I shared in Sunday school, is I am a production manager for General Electric. And we build product. And the only reason we build the product is because customers want them. The only reason we lead the market that we're in is because customers like us better than our competitors. It's the functions that we have in our instruments, the on-time delivery, and the uh, quality of the instrument. And so it's all about uh, customer satisfaction. <coughs> Much like probably what many of you do, whatever job, whatever function you're in, it really is about the end customer. As much as we'd like to grumble and gripe and, and think it's about us, it's really about our customer. If there's not a customer, there's no need for our product, whatever that product may be, or our service, whatever that service may be. But isn't it mind-boggling sometimes to stop and think the building of a golf cart I don't know what you know. Let's just take the building of an automobile because we've all seen those. And uh, how many parts go into an automobile? How, ma how much time does it take to put that automobile together? How do those parts even fit together? Who designed them? Who went out and purchased those parts from all those vendors? I know the, the product we make, uh, I'd say 90% of our, our product are what we buy from vendors. We buy from suppliers, and we just put, take those parts, we design them, we ask them to build them the way we want them, and then we put them together. Again, it's often mind-boggling to think that it starts with a salesperson going out to a customer, a customer being persuaded and convinced to buy our product. The order comes in-house, has to be processed through our sales and marketing team. Then it goes over to the finance people to make sure that there is money there to pay for that product. And then uh, they put this order together after they do it in order entry. It finally shows up out on our floor, and our team builds it. But our team is dependent on the planning team to go out and buy the product and make sure it's, it's there as much as we need and when we need for the specific product we're building. It is fascinating when you stop and think of all the things that have to come together just to get one item out the door, just to build that one vehicle uh, that you use. A lot of people, a lot of time, and a lot of processes had to come together. Now, I, wanna, I want you to think about from the beginning of creation how much had to come together for the birth of Christ. All the things that God had to and, and enjoyed Himself in doing to bring that occasion to fruition for the birth of Christ. We see it and I mentioned this verse in uh, Sunday school hour, uh, Galatians 4.4. And that particular verse says, reads like this, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And the key phrase there is, But when the fullness of time was come. Now I want you to think about how many thousands of years that particular statement covers. It starts with the beginning of creation to the birth of Christ. Through His life, through His death, burial, and resurrection, and there are still things yet to come. There are still fullness of times yet to come. But this specific statement speaks of God when He sent forth His Son to take on flesh. In Romans chapter 5, let's look at that real quick before we get to our main passage. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. We see a similar type statement. 
Only in this case, it's not dealing so much with Christ's birth, but with His death. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, we read this. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So in Galatians 4.4 we see, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. In Romans 5.6 we see that uh, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God sent forth His Son for you and for me. Christ died on the cross for you and for me. It was a time when we were out without strength. It was a time when Christ redeemed us. In Galatians 4.5, He uses the term redeem. He buys us back. God sent forth His Son in order to buy us back from that place of enmity <clears throat> that we find ourselves in Romans 5. Also in Galatians chapter 5, or or verse 4 there, I'm sorry, verse 5, and we didn't turn there, it speaks of a term, the adoption of sons. This is another time that's still yet to come. It's our hope. And I want you, while you're in Romans, just turn maybe a page or two over to Romans chapter 8, and let's understand what this adoption of sons is. I want you to see what God is doing in the fullness of time, what He did in due time, what He's going to do in a time to come. This is our hope. In Romans chapter 8, If you look at verses 22 and 23, it says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. When you see that term, this adoption of sons, what is Paul referring to? A day to come, a day which we're looking for. I know in Sunday school one of the prayer requests was for a family that just lost a loved one. There were other prayer requests for a family member who is going through cancer. There, there are many among us who are going through <coughs> different issues, diseases, difficulties of life. We groan and we travail just like God's creation right now waiting for that day, waiting for the day when we will be changed and glorified into that new body when we truly have filled in, in, in ourselves and of ourselves through Christ this glorification where there's no more pain, there's no more sorrows, when we see the fulfillment of that adoption in the, as sons of our Lord. But it's going to come in a time to come. We're in the last days. God speaks a lot about time. Uh, Not that time matters to Him in the sense that He's infinite. He's without beginning. He's without end. But His creation is based in time. In the beginning, God. What did He do? He created. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And so we have this beginning of time. And we have these seasons that God takes us through. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son in order to take on flesh with an ultimate goal to die on the cross to redeem us in due time. So that in the end times, in that last time, we experience the blessing of glorification and being with our Heavenly Father and with our Lord Jesus Christ forevermore. What a glorious thing that is to look for. But have you really considered and stopped all the things that God had to do just to bring this into play. Now we spoke this morning, uh, uh, gave a definition of the word providence. The word providence. This is a word that actually refers to God. It describes the biblical doctrine of God's active involvement and intervention directly or indirectly in human affairs. So what we have is God providentially involves Himself in all of His creation, and especially in our lives. Sometimes He's always active. Sometimes it's very direct in our lives, and we know that God has done this very thing. 
Sometimes it's indirect because He's established circumstances and put things in place and we come to see it and understand it later that that was God. Only God could do that. Only God could bring that to fruition. Now there's a couple of um, divisions we can make within this uh, area of providence. We have preserving providence and governing providence. Preserving providence is where God continuously preserves and maintains the existence of every part of His creation. From the smallest part of His creation to the greatest part of His creation. You know, we talk about God knowing the very hairs on our head. And I say to you that God knows every atom that's ever been made. That He created. He understands where they are, what every particle in His creation is doing at all times. And not only does He know, He controls it. We talk about uh, save this creature, save this animal. They're going into distinction. We're destroying the world. We're doing this and that. Really? Or is it God allowing it? Is it really possible for us to destroy God's creation without Him allowing it? You know, we don't always understand why God allows certain things. But it is God. And, and, and if we ever stop and wonder and think to ourselves, but God wouldn't allow this. God wouldn't do that. Then what we've done is we've taken away from His omnipotence. We've taken away from who He is in our own minds. So, though God doesn't cause us to sin, God does allow testing and trials to come into our life. We have decisions to make to sin. He doesn't ordain sin, but He does allow it, and we reap the effects of sin in a fallen world even this day. But it's God's preserving providence. He sustains His creation how He wants to sustain it. He also governs it. We call this governing providence. This is where God graciously guides and governs all events, including the free acts of men and their external circumstances and directs all things to their appointed ends for His glory. Now that one's a hard hard thing to understand. If God is always governing, how do I have free will and free decision? I don't know. I can't give you an answer to how that happens. I know that God is not a bully, but He is just. I know that all things work together to good for His glory. The good is for us, but ultimately everything is done. Everything that Christ did, as much as He loved you, as much as He gave Himself for you and for me, it was for His Father's glory. He suborned Himself to His Father. And the Father has all control. All governing providence of everything. What a blessing it is that God allows us to move in this life and to make the decisions that we're able to make in this life, and yet God knows these things. He directs these things. It's hard to understand, but it's something that we accept by faith. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, because this is the season of Christmas. It's a time where uh, as you are preparing for your special programs, we've moved into a season, a, season, a season of singing these hymns. What a blessing it is. What a, a great thing it is to reflect at this time of year. And I'd encourage you to not limit these hymns to this time of the year. You can sing Christmas hymns all year long because of the message that's in those hymns. And in fact, you'll see that much of the message the messages that are in those hymns, they don't just limit themselves or, 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 or just look only at the birth of Christ. Watch the picture that develops in those hymns. They're all pointing to what Christ has done for us. And what a great thing that is. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at a very familiar passage, probably one of the most familiar passages uh, to many uh, when we read of this particular aspect of the Christmas story. I want to read the first seven verses and I'd ask that you would just kind of note to yourself all the details listed. Take a look at the names. Uh, consider the places and, and the events. All the things that are occurring just in, in these verses alone. And I want us to be thinking about the providence in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at chapter 2 of Luke, verses 1-7. through seven. And it came to pass in those days 
that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in a swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I know I went beyond verse 7, but I wanted to get to that message Uh, this announcement to these shepherds of who this baby was uh, that was born. You know, the the sad thing is that even many Christians fail to see the magnificence and wonder in the providential work of God in this event. You know, God providentially orchestrated every aspect of this event in the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. And when we really stop and think about it, our response should be to give God glory. Just stop and glorify our God for all it is that He did that no one else can or could do in order to bring this event to fruition. Let's pray. Father, I thank You this morning that we have Your Word. I thank You that we have this revelation of Your Word and the things that You've done. And this morning, I I pray, Father, that we'll give You all glory and honor as we consider Your active role in bringing this event to fruition. It's because You love us. It's because You do not desire that we would perish, but that we would accept Christ as our Savior that we would be heirs of yours. Not because we loved you, you loved us first. Not because we were loving towards you, for we were at enmity with you, enemies. You loved us in spite of ourselves, and you orchestrated this event in order that Christ would come in the flesh and be born, that we one day could accept him as Savior because of the act of love that he did for us and obedience to You, and His death, burial, and resurrection. Now, Father, help us to to, to have joy in our hearts and to just lift high and exalt Your name this day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, we don't have time to look at every specific event leading up to this from, from what we have in the Old Testament, nor do we have time in history. But I do want to survey just a few passages in the Old Testament and kind of touch on a little bit of a general timeline leading up to this event as we consider how God providentially orchestrated the time of the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Let's just look briefly at the time and how we learned a lot of these things from Scripture. During the time of Jesus' birth, there was an empire that ruled the world. That particular empire was the Roman Empire. We still have the effects of the Roman Empire today. That particular empire was prophesied to come into being in the 6th century B.C. 600 years roughly before the birth of Christ, Daniel, through the inspiration of God, prophesied that there would be this kingdom. Assyria had already come and conquered the northern kingdom. Babylon was in the, in the place of growing. They had overthrown the Assyrians and they were the next kingdom to come that would come and take the southern kingdom. They would remove the people. Following that, Daniel says, there would be a, a, another kingdom, the Medo-Persians. Then there would be a third kingdom following the Babylonians. Uh, the pictures given would show that that is the Greek Empire. And the fourth would be the Roman Empire. 
So 600 years, long before the birth of Christ, we see an empire was prophesied to come into being. And at the time of Christ's birth, we see that there was a Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of the Roman Empire at that time. Now God directed this particular Caesar to proclaim a tax, a taxation. It was to come in due time. In that fullness of time, this taxation was to take place. It set into place the events. Now, we need to understand that the tax that occurred that directed Joseph and Mary uh, to the place where they had to pay their tax, that was not the first taxation on them. This was actually the second taxation. Sir William Ramsey, who was a noted British chemist and archaeologist as well as a biblical scholar, he discovered in 1923 in Ankara, Turkey, a Roman temple with the inscription which stated that the reign of Caesar Augustus, that there, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, that there were three great tax collections. These tax collections were typically four years apart. Now what he found was that the second tax collection, which was ordered four years before the birth of Christ, and a third ordered after the birth of Christ, which we actually see mentioned in Acts chapter 5 being referred to, this led to a time uh, of strife uh, with the Jews. Well, they hated the Romans. They hated being subservient to the Roman Empire. They long awaited the coming of their Messiah who was prophesied to, prophesied to break that yoke and break that bondage. And they thought it would come during their time and that He would break that bondage of the Roman Empire. Well, when this second taxation came, uh, the notice came, uh, the Jews, being a proud people, dissented. They went to uh, this governor, Cyrenius, who actually is listed in historical times during that time when Christ was born. But he could not do anything for him. He could not resolve the issue. Certainly he couldn't speak against what uh, the Caesar had said needed to happen. And so the Jews themselves sent a delegation to Rome. They failed in, that, in resolving this, and so they had to pay uh, this tax. And so uh, what they had to do was, in preparation for the tax, they had to travel. And so the Jews in their enrollment uh, failed uh, meeting with Caesar. And due to the slowness of travel, of message, it took an extended amount of time for this word to get back to Israel, to get to the Jews, to get throughout the Roman Empire, so that Jews of whatever lineage they were would have to travel uh, to their place of enrollment and pay that tax. I don't like paying taxes, but I do, I do not mind now being able to do them online. I don't have to drive to the IRS building in Washington, D.C. and pay taxes. Um, that would be quite a trip. And so you can imagine what it would be to get notice that you've got to pay this tax, so now you've got to go enroll so that they know who you were and pay the tax relative to who you were and what family and lineage you were from. And when we look at this, we look at the timing that this tax was given four years before, but it took that long for all the communication to come and reach Jerusalem at that time. Now in the meantime, what has God done? God has providentially directed the politics of the Roman Empire to establish this census, this tax at this time. God has providentially directed the commerce of that empire at that time to direct for this financial income from all peoples that were under the thumb of Rome. Also, what Rome had done over their uh, hundreds of years of control was establish a road system. It would have taken much longer than the time that it did take for this message to travel to the Jews to establish this tax if there was not a road system sovereignly directed by God to be built. It's also the same road system that allowed for the Gospel then to spread from Jerusalem all throughout Asia. As Paul and Barnabas traveled all of those various roads, going through all the various regions and cities to give out the Gospel. It's all because God allowed the Roman Empire to be established and for them to establish their road system. 
And actually, they were at that time the modern means of communication. That was their postal system sending messengers along those roads doing the bidding of the emperor. And when you stop and think about the the, the time involved, think about what happened with Adam 4,000 years before the time of Christ's birth. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We see immediately, 4,000 years before the birth of Christ, that Adam is given a promise that one is to come who would defeat this enemy, who would defeat Satan. And not only would this come, it said it would be of the woman's seed. And so we see God immediately establishing a, a means of redemption providentially from the first couple that sinned, Adam and Eve. God made a plan of redemption from that time. And from that moment forward, God providentially brought it all into place. Consider Abraham 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. In Genesis 12:3, we have this promise, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Again, we have a promise from God that all families of this earth would be blessed by a seed that would follow from the lineage of Abraham. Well, God had to protect the lineage of Abraham. How many of us in our lifetime have seen family lineages stop? Because there's no more children. There's no more cousins. There's no more uh, family members to carry on the name. Think of how many years and how many uh, opportunities there were with the seed of Abraham to be cut off. Consider how many times Satan tried to cut off the seed of Abraham in order for this promise not to be fulfilled. In Jacob, uh, we see from Numbers 24.17, we see this promise, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. We have a a prophecy here uh, given uh, from the lineage of Jacob that says that one day there will be a king. At this time, there is no king. Moses is leading the people. They live in a theocracy. It wasn't until many, many, many years later where the people demanded a king. God didn't want to give them a king. They didn't need a king. They had judges. They had direct access to God and His Word. But God knew. God knew man's nature. God knew that we would be stubborn against Him, that we would oppose Him and everything, and that we would like to be like everyone around us. The Jews wanted to be like the Moabites. They wanted to be like the Ishmaelites. They wanted to be like the Jebusites. We want our own king. We want to be like the Philistines. We want to have our own rule. God, we don't want You solely to rule over us. We want a king. And many hundreds of years before that, God says, there will be a king that will come. And we certainly see a king fulfilled in the lineage of David, but that wasn't the king that was being spoken of here coming from coming from Jacob. So we see that we need to give God the glory in His providential control of time, just bringing all of these events in the fullness of time, at the due time, just the right things happen. In fact, in verses 1 and 2 of Luke here, uh, chapter 2, and it came to pass in those days, and this taxing was made, but it came to pass in those days. Later on, we see verse 6, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished. God orchestrated providentially all the events and timing to bring Joseph and Mary just to the right place at the right time for the birth of Jesus the Messiah. We should give Him the glory when we just consider the timing that God controlled over the many years. But what about the place? 
What about the place? In Genesis 49.10, it was told to Judah, speaking more about this king, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet and Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. We should give glory regarding the place. Not only is it a lineage going through Jacob, specifically through his son Judah, there's this king, this kingly tribe. It is going to happen through you. Now we know later on, there, as the tribes came in, as the land was divided, there's a specific place given to the tribe of Judah. A thousand years before the birth of Christ. We have this in Isaiah 9.7. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever and ever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We know where David was born. We know where David was from. He was from that land of Judah. He was of the tribe of Judah. Here we have a man that was born of Bethlehem. And it says his government and of his seed a kingdom will be established and never removed. So God not only took a time, but He also took a family line directed to a place in the promised land that He had given. Now if you look at Matthew chapter 1, it's very interesting. The very first thing, the very first thing that we get in the New Testament is a lineage. A line. And if I was writing one of these books, I'm not sure I would start there. How many of you have read through uh, all of the Old Testament? Read every word of all the lineage in the Old Testament? Or do we just kind of bypass those? How many of us have read all of Matthew 1? Or do we just kind of shoot through Matthew 1 because it's got a lot of names in there of people that we don't fully understand? But this gives the lineage of Joseph. It's a royal lineage. This particular lineage listing goes back to Abraham. It passes through Judah. It passes through David. It passes through Solomon and comes to Jeconia. Jeconia was the king who was taken to Babylon. You know what the, the rulers of Babylon would typically do to a king from another land that they had conquered? They would kill them. And in fact, in some cases... That's what the Babylonian kings did. But God in His providence preserved this king. He preserved this lineage even during the time of Babylonian captivity. If you look at Matthew 1 and verse 16, we have this verse. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. It's a very important verse on two senses. Uh, For those who... Uh, deny the deity of Christ and deny the supernatural birth of Christ, we have right here the tracking of lineage of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and the way that that verse is written, especially in the Greek, of whom speaks of Mary. So even though Jesus' earthly father is Joseph and his lineage is of David, as was promised, It makes it very clear in this passage that this is a special birth. That Joseph is not the natural father of Jesus. Of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. But we see this lineage starts in verse 1 with Abraham, David. It's the lineage of Jesus Christ. Now in the book that we started in, Luke, let's go there. And after the birth of Christ, after we have this wonderful story, that we get into and we study through. Then we come and we began to read through Luke and suddenly at verse 23 we get into another lineage. How many of us read through this and look at all of these names? Can't pronounce half of them. Probably most of them. But in verse 23, and Jesus Himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. And then on and on it goes until we come to verse 38, which was the son of Enos, or Enoch, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And in this lineage is where we find Mary's lineage. 
She was the offspring of David. She was of the tribe of Judah. And this lineage of Jesus goes all the way back to Adam. One thing that I find amazing as well is the fact that when the temple was destroyed, so were the records of the Jews. And yet the Jews were able to preserve their records even to this time in such a way that they're able to track lineage. In A.D. 70, when Rome later comes in and destroys uh, this second temple that was built, there are no records. Today, Jews, I, I don't know how this is going to happen, for in the book of Revelation, during the time of tribulation, there will be 144,000 Jews saved by God. And they will know of what tribe they're from, and yet today you can't ask a Jew what tribe they're from. They don't have records. I don't know how they're going to know. But in God and His providence, He's going to preserve them just as He preserved the records here. And we have a record of, of where Christ came. And we know where He was born. 700 years before the birth of Christ, we have this in Micah 5.2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall He come forth unto Me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting. There's much biblical history attached to Bethlehem, especially the death of Rachel and the birth of Benjamin. But we see in God's providence over time, in God's providence in place, we see the hand of the Lord and we should give Him glory. For God directed that these who were of the lineage of David be directed to Bethlehem, a small and relatively insignificant city. Even though it's Bethlehem, it's called the house of bread. The purpose of Bethlehem was for those shepherds. The shepherds who tended over the sheep, whose only purpose was to use those sheep to take up for sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not very far away from Bethlehem. It was just a mere few miles away and uh, easy travel between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. But this is where God, in His providence of time, through His providence of maintaining that lineage to this very place where Mary and Joseph have to come for the birth of Christ, prophesied 700 years before. How many cities do archaeologists, they're unable to find today from these ancient lands that existed during the time 700 years before the birth of Christ. Very few exist. Really few are, are known. Many of these major cities uh, that are in, in Israel are built over top of old cities. Sometimes they don't even know what city it is until they dig into the mound. But God preserved that city. And God providentially orchestrated the manner for the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we should give Him glory for that as well. And it's not so much in the providence that we need to look at, but you know, Jesus was not born under the house of His mother. Now, they didn't have hospitals in those days. Jesus was born in a place, a strange place. And even the place that He was born in, depicted by this nativity scene here, was a place where you would not expect people to be, certainly not a baby. And this king who was to be born, this one who was to rule, who would have expected that he would be born in a trough and most likely in a cave where the animals stayed at that time? Why? Because there was no room in the end. But God was in control of all those things. And we should take solace in the fact that God's in control of every event, even in our lives. Every aspect of our life, every moment of our life, God knows us, God cares about us, and God is watching over us, and God is providentially directing our lives to bring glory to Himself. The psalmist said in Psalm 31.15, My times are in Thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of my en mine enemies and from them that persecute me we see that there is an overruling providence of God in all things. I know at times I have issue with our government, the administrations that are in, the, 
in at this time, the programs that they institute, the decisions that they make. They're oftentimes anti-God. They're oftentimes uplifting of immoral values. And yet I understand that God in His providence is overseeing even what's going on now in opposition to Himself. The overruling providence of God appears in this simple fact. He orders all things in heaven and earth and He turns the hearts of kings. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, He turneth whithersoever He will. And so I want us to exalt God in everything. If you pick up that paper or if you see the news and you see these terrible things going on and we wonder, what is this world coming to? Well, this world is coming to a bad place at some point. But then God in His providence, He is going to destroy all that's here and bring forth a new heavens and new earth. It will happen in that due time. In the fullness of time. At that proper time, we will experience that newness because we'll have been adopted. We'll experience that with the glorification. In the past, God established all things in order that His Son would be sent to this earth at just the right time. That He would be born. That He would take flesh upon Himself and become a servant to all men. To be obedient to His Father. And at just that right time, He would expose Himself and become the minister that that He needed to be, the teacher, the Savior to deliver. He wasn't the king the Jews expected. And that's why they rejected Him. That individual is still yet to come. Jesus as King. But He did come to be the Savior deliverer. He was called in these stories Emmanuel, God with us. He's called Savior. He's our Deliverer. He went to the cross to die for our sins at just the right time. He was buried. He was in that tomb just the right amount of time. He arose from the grave just the right amount of time. He spent just the right number of days on this earth and ascended to the heavens and is at the right hand of the Father, sitting on His throne now, ruling and reigning, and He will return at just the right time. What a wonderful time of season it is to be reminded that we're not worshiping a baby. We're worshiping God Almighty who came at just the right time. And a gracious God who has revealed Himself to us in His message and truly at just the right time has given you the message of salvation. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a few moments. In a moment, we're going to close in a hymn. But I want us to consider in the fullness of time, just the right time, when was that right time for you? When did our God, through Christ, reveal Himself in such a way to you that you recognized that you were a sinner And you needed Christ as your Savior. In His grace, He brought you to that place just at that right time to acknowledge that you could not do a thing for yourself. But for God's providence, who knows what we would be or whether we would even be alive at that right time. But at the right time, God brought His Word into your life. The good news. And allowed you to understand that through His Son who died for you, through His shed blood, you could be redeemed. That Christ had paid the price. That you didn't have to do anything but to accept Him by faith. And He's promised to save you and to deliver you. And not only that, at that very moment, He gave you a taste of what's to come. He gave you the earnest, the seal of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful and blessed God we have. And I would hope that everyone in here could say that at just the right time, I accepted Christ as my Savior. But I am not naive enough to believe that everyone in here has called on Christ this day because I don't know your heart. 
God does. And it may be that today is that day where it's just the right time for you. That today is the day of salvation. That today is a day not to delay. God has orchestrated every event in your life to bring you to this place, to this time, to hear this story of love and this story of mercy and this story of grace. And He's favored you with an opportunity to accept Him as your Savior. And I'd ask that if you have not called on Christ as your Savior, that you do so today. There's no magic words. It's between you and God, and it's from your heart. Whatever words you have to use to God to ask Him to just save me. Thank You, Father, for doing all these things for me, to sending Your Son at just the right time. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sins and making a way of salvation. And thank You, Father, for bringing me even now to this place and giving me the opportunity to become a child of Yours. And I'd ask that if You are at that place this very moment, that You would call on God to save You. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. But one thing we do know, we don't know what tomorrow holds. That's a certainty. I don't even know what the next moment holds. And God brings you to this place at this time for this message for you to make that decision. Now for those of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, we spoke a little bit about this in Sunday school today. You know, a message was here for you as well. God's providentially worked in your life and providentially placed you where you are and He will allow you providentially to be in specific situations and circumstances, especially over this Christmas season, to share the Gospel with others. Will you be a faithful steward of His Word? Will you administrate His Word and share with others? What will you do for a wonderful God who has brought you to this place for this work to be a doer? Father, I thank You now for this opportunity to meet with You and to have You meet with us. And I pray that the Holy Spirit has been allowed to work in our hearts even this day and that we'll not resist Him, but that we will be tender to His leading and guiding. And Father, may may we understand what You have done for us and give You great glory and exaltation through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank You that Jesus Christ came not to be born, but to die for our sin to rise and show victory over death, and that one day we will reign with Him as we live with Him forever. And we thank You for this favor that You've bestowed upon us. Certainly we don't merit it, (coughs) but graciously You've given it to us. Now Father, as we prepare to sing a closing hymn (coughs) for anyone who may not have already done business with You, may they not hesitate and do so now. In Christ's name I pray, amen.